Good morning. It's always a blessing to be with you. I wanted to take just a moment in our worship service. Uh, as James talked about, we want to be people who are constantly living lives of generosity. And I want to give you an update. I think last time we told you we were somewhere around $55,000 given for hurricane relief. And we are now just about at $70,000. Uh, and I'm just amazed at your hearts and all the people uh, that will be helped because of it. Uh, in response to that, uh, Global Samaritan is uh, wanting to, to give us an invitation. I'm going to ask Mark. I was going to tell you earlier, but then I would have made you nervous for like 30 minutes. And now I'm making you super nervous for 10 seconds. So if you'll come up here. I wouldn't do this to just anybody. I, I know Mark will forgive me. Would you give us just a few details on, on how Global Samaritan's wanting to, to say thank you? Yes, this well-prepared speech. Um... <laughs> Global Samaritan, I don't mind telling you, is a great organization. That's why Karen and I chose to serve on that board. Actually, Karen chose me to serve on that board. 100% of this amount of money, 100% goes towards the relief of the victims of Hurricane Harvey. And actually, the hurricane in, uh, in Florida as well now. Uh, as a result, they have sent with me today over 100 tickets for Tuesday night's event with uh, Dr. Robert Gates, who will be coming in to speak to us about global leadership uh, and about Global Samaritan. I will be, where am I going to be? I'm going to be uh, right up here after service, and I will have those tickets available for anyone who would like a ticket for this Tuesday night's event at 7.30 to hear Dr. Robert Gates, former Secretary of Defense for two administrations, uh, speak at the Civic Center. So there you go. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the ways that you care for us and provide for us and then give us the chance uh, to take care of and provide for other people, to provide for men and women and children who are your children. God, we pray that you continue to bless this church with a giving heart. We pray for Global Samaritan that you will give the leadership there wisdom to continue to know how best to help in your name. And God, as we now focus our hearts on your words to us in the Ten Commandments, we pray that you really would speak to us, that you would reach us, and that you would change us. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles up to Exodus chapter 20. We'll start reading together in verse 1. And God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but 
showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long. You want to live long, don't you, Jared? I remember my mom asking me one day. She said, God's got some words of advice about that. At some point, every child realizes that their parents are just normal, everyday people. Which always comes as a bit of a shock. Because it doesn't matter if they're your parents or your grandparents or someone else who has brought you into their home. The people who raise you from the youngest of ages, as as you start to become aware of your life and yourself and the world around you, you... You see those people, and they're, they're almost superhuman. I mean, it seems like they're always there when you need them, that they, they have all the answers to all the questions you might ask them, that they're able to protect you from all the dangers that you might face. They, they're everything to you. And you are able to, to trust them. You are able to rely on them. But then, as you start to age, as the years pass, you start to want to be your your own person. As much as you love them, as much as you trust them, as much as you you want to still go to them for answers, you you start to realize you you want to be able to say no. You you want to be able to make your own choices. And so there there becomes a tension between you and the people who raise you, you, you and your mother and your father. And All these kinds of decisions have to be made between you and your parents. Of of how is this relationship going to work as as, as a child grows up to be their own person and, and have their own thoughts and their own opinions, and yet they're still being raised by somebody else who has a lot more experience than they do, who has a lot more understanding. And for a while that works, but somewhere in the teenage years, usually there comes a moment where all of us kind of decide it's not just that they don't know everything anymore. We're pretty sure they don't know anything that really matters. And we know better. We, we see things clearly and they, they don't. They're just, they're the opposite of, of, of cool. They don't get it. They don't get us. They don't get our friends. And, and then as, 
as the relationship continues from there, and, and if you, you get to a point where you leave home to, to go to school or something, and there's a little distance created, and you're, you're finally able to kind of look back at who your parents are, it's then that you see that it's not just that they're annoying. It's not just that they're, they're old-fashioned and they don't get it or they don't get you. You start to realize that in very real terms, they, they make mistakes. That, that they try to do things and they fail. That they, they say they're, they're going to follow through on something and, and it, it gets too complicated or it gets too stressful. And they, they don't end up doing what they say they're going to do. They're everyday, ordinary people. And we have a choice to make when we reach that place of realizing that the people who raised us, the people who are our, our mothers and our fathers, that that they're not absolutely perfect and that they, they don't have all the answers and that they make decisions that don't make a whole lot of sense to us. We have a choice to make, and that is, will we reject them because they're not perfect like we thought they were when we were little kids? Will we walk away from that relationship or will we decide that we're going to have a new kind of relationship? A relationship built not on our parents being absolutely perfect in everything they say and do or having absolute knowledge, knowing all the right answers. But a decision where we're going to have a relationship that's based on love and trust. That's built in spite of those moments of disappointment and mistakes. I remember going to to college here at ACU. My, my parents were still living in California, and I had kind of gone through that process of thinking that my parents were the be-all, end-all in my life to gradually having some frustration uh, as I was in high school and then coming thousands of miles away here to be at school and, and having some time to think about it. There, there were just things about my parents that really started to frustrate me. And I remember going home for a summer, and you know how you come back from college in that summer, and, and you just have learned so many things that you need to share, because you're just, you can't get over how amazingly smart you are after all these things that you've learned. And so I, I remember thinking, I, it's not just that I've learned some geometry and some Greek and some other stuff, I've learned how to be the best possible person you can be, and my parents need me to help them understand that. So I go to dinner with my mom. It's just the two of us. And I start telling my mom, I have a list of things I've come up with that I wish my father had done to be a better father to me. You know, he should have been home more. He should have listened more. He should have been more patient with me. And I'm just going on and on and on. And I don't know how my mother didn't hit me with a breadstick, but I just kept talking and talking and talking. And I believed what I was saying. Right? It was frustrating to me that there were stories of, of times where I really felt like I had been wronged. There needed to be some sort of restitution. And I thought my mommy could work that out for me between me and my father. <laughs> and she lets me get through all of that. And she says, let me, let me tell you a few things about your dad that I'm not sure you know. One of his earliest memories, Jared, is... Him and, and his brothers, you know, your uncles, getting into a car 
with their mother. And they're scared because they've done this before. They get in the car with her and she's shaking. She's trembling. And so they're going to drive to the grocery store to get her a bottle of something that helps her stop shaking. But even now, she can barely see straight. And so the drive from the, the house to the, the grocery store scares them. They're, they're going in and out of lanes, and she's running red lights, and she finally gets to the grocery store, and she gets inside, and then she comes out with a bottle that's in a, a brown paper bag, and she sits down, and she drinks enough until she can stop shaking, and then she drives them home again. And it wasn't just your grandmother, Dorothy, who struggled with drinking in your dad's home. Every so often in the middle of the night, your grandfather would drag your dad out of bed and stand him up in the kitchen with his brothers and shout at them like they were in the U.S. Army and talk to them about some war and all the friends that he'd lost. And he'd keep shouting at them until... He tired himself out, and there were times he would just slump down in the kitchen table, and and he'd just slump over on the table and sleep there all night. There were times that he would fall onto the kitchen floor, and your father and his brothers, they would just wait until they thought it was safe for them to sneak back into their room and try to go back to sleep. Your dad could have done some things differently, son. He did the best he could you might want to cut him a little slack. Well, that was hard to take in. I mean, it makes sense that we didn't tell those stories all the time in my family, right? They're pretty uncomfortable. They're they're pretty awful. But hearing those stories changed the way, it, it didn't just change the way I thought about my dad, it changed the way I saw my dad. So I remember a couple of weeks later, still in that same summer, thinking, I got I to gotta fix this attitude problem thing I've had with him, and I've got to say something. And so, you know, we sit down one afternoon, and, and I tell him, man, I'm, I am sorry for the attitude I've had the last few years. You know, there were some things growing up I wish had been different between us, and, and I, I still think maybe... I want us to talk about those things at some point, but but before we do any of that, I just want to tell you, I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry for what you went through. I'm sorry for what I've put you through. I'm sorry. And his response to me was, you don't have to feel sorry for me, son. My parents did the best they could. And I, I know it wasn't much. And I know a lot of times it wasn't even good, but it was the best they could do. They taught me that I, I needed to work hard. They, they showed me how to be somebody who, who cared more about other people, the material things. My, my parents always, always would give away anything or, or they just held things loosely. And that's been important to me in my life. And, and as flawed as they were, they tried. And it just didn't seem like enough to me. I mean, he said that, and I thought, yeah, but dad, like, this is, it's not okay what happened to you. And he said, son, I'm not saying that it was okay. I'm just saying I know they did the best they could. And I just wouldn't leave it alone. 
You know, I just kept asking question after question, and finally he said, okay, I need to tell you a story. Before I was born, or, or my brothers, any of us were born, my mom and dad had a daughter named Christina. And, and as all first, only children, she changed their life completely. She was beautiful. She was their pride and joy. She was their everything. And one afternoon, they were driving together as a family on the highway. And your grandparents heard a clicking sound in the back seat. And she managed to open the door. And their car had rear doors that opened into the wind. And they both turned around and she was gone. And my father had to stop the car This is my dad speaking still. My father had to stop the car and go pick her up. And my mother held her as they drove to the hospital. And they knew she was gone. They knew she was already gone. But what else were they supposed to do? Every time my mother drank, my dad said. Every time my mother drank, she talked about Christina. Every time my father would shout at us about some enemy in some war, he would talk about an enemy taking his little girl away. They were drinking because they were trying to forget, and it never worked. It never worked. And it's not okay. None of it's okay. But I know they did the best they could. And I love them. And I realized in that moment that I was far from being the first son to hear a story, to learn something about a a father That created grace. That creates grace inside of that child for their parent. Now, I'm a slow learner. So I figured, you know, I really, really didn't have any problems with my dad anymore. But my mom, I still had a list of stuff that I, I wanted him to bring up and fix with her. Right, and so her, her thing, she was more passionate. She was really impatient. There were times that... My mom doesn't do anything halfway. My mom does everything 100%. And so there were just times it felt like we, we were all kind of just doing our best to, to, to go 100% with her. And if, if she figured out you weren't all in on something, it, just, it, was, it was difficult. It was like she was just looking for an argument or, or looking for some sort of, of conflict. And, and so there were times that that was really hard. I, I think most of that was caused by the fact that my parents came uh, from a, a background that didn't really have church in it at all. And here they were, uh, a preacher and a preacher's wife. And she felt an, just an insane amount of pressure uh, from what she thought church people were seeing when they looked at us. Right? And so she just, she, it, it wasn't just like she wanted us to appear perfect to everybody at church. It was like she desperately needed us to appear perfect to everybody at church. And it wasn't even like she needed that for herself. It was that she felt she needed that for the sake of everybody else, right? That there would be hope held out in the church that at least one family here is perfect. Not realizing all along that when any family in a church pretends to be perfect, it makes the rest of us feel judged, like we're falling short. She didn't know she didn't know that. She just knew that that was the expectation and we needed to be that family. And so there were just 
it was just hard. And, and my sisters and I grew up trying our hardest to appear perfect and always falling short and scaring our mother half to death that somebody else was going to figure out we weren't perfect. And I'm not proud to say this, but that kind of internal pressure in my family caused me to develop a long simmering resentment of my mother's expectations. And, and I reached a place where I just told myself, true or not, I told myself, I just can't win. So I'm, I'm going to just stop. I'm going to stop paying attention. I'm going to stop trying to please her. I'm going to stop. Enough's enough. And I, I just kind of, I don't know, I felt justified in it. I felt like, you know, it, it's not like it's just a one-time thing. This is an everyday struggle that, that we have to face, and enough's enough. Well, you'd think I'd stop having dinner with my parents by themselves. But anyway, I go out with my dad. Right, we're having that talk, and I say all that stuff, and he says, well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> so, <clears throat> my, my grandfather, who at, at that point in my life was, you know, all he was to me was a, a kindly older man who gave me candy when he wasn't supposed to, and, you know, I guess was trying to get into heaven right there at the end or something. So he, he had changed his behavior entirely. And that's all I knew. But that wasn't who he was when my mom was growing up. He, he was a binge drinker. And so he didn't drink all the time like my dad's mom, but he, he would give in every so often. And when he drank, he just... He just wouldn't stop, and so he would go through basically almost his entire paycheck on that particular weekend, and he would come home angry and loud, and he would frighten my mother and her sisters, and he would yell at, at his wife, Thelma, my grandmother, and he, he just, he was impossible to deal with. He, he would hallucinate that there were bugs crawling all over him, and he would talk about all of his friends that he'd lost through the years, and he would, he would cry about things that had happened in the war, and then he would finally pass out. And the next morning, Selma, my grandmother, would yell at him and, and just tell him, you know, if you cared for us at all, if you, if you loved us at all, you wouldn't do this anymore. And my mother and her sisters heard those words, and they didn't just hear those words. Those words were words that they believed to be true, and so they, they grew up. Deeply trusting and loving their mother. I mean, their mother was their, their whole world. She took care of them. She was, she was their rock, their foundation. She was the one who kept them safe when they were afraid, even when they were afraid of their own father. But they worried. They wondered. Was she right? Was she right that, that this struggle with alcohol, that that Joe had, did it mean that he didn't care for them, that he didn't love them? Well, Thelma was, was never that healthy. She struggled with her health her entire life. And I remember we were on a vacation when my mom got the phone call that her mom uh, was, was taking a turn for the worse. And so we, we cut our vacation short. We rushed uh, to the hospital. 
Uh, and, and my dad told me a story about what happened in that hospital room that I, I wasn't there for. He said, you know, your mom gets in there, she's in her 30s, and she's, she's the only other person in the room with your grandfather, with Joe. And Thelma's in the bed, and they're standing there, and they don't have much of anything to say to each other, because even though he's technically her father, she doesn't feel any real connection to him after what she's been through. And she's about to lose her mother, who has been everything for her, and all she's going to be left with is him. And she doesn't, know, she doesn't know where to begin with that. And then she watches my grandfather do something that she didn't know was in him. He, he can tell that his wife, his bride, Thelma, is nearing the end. And so he takes her hand and through tears he says to her, Honey, it's okay. I, I'm going to miss you so much. It's okay, but you can let go. You can let go. And he says that over and over and over to her for 20 minutes. And after 20 minutes... She lets go. And, and my mother felt like in those 20 minutes, she was able to realize that, that all those years of doubting his love because of the struggle that he'd had for most of his life, right? And he'd finally stopped. He'd reached a place where he'd stopped, but it was too little too late. And then this happens, and my mother realizes that there's a love there that she, she had somehow doubted and missed to the point where she really didn't believe it was possible. But there it was. And she couldn't deny it. And so she reached out to him. She didn't know what else to do in that moment. She just reached out to him and held his hand. And she remembered a truth about her dad. She remembered a story about her dad that she, she knew. But she, she had to push this story far away from her own heart when she was angry with him and hurt with him. And the story was that he lost his own mother and then his father left him when he was nine years old. When he was nine years old, he was left to fend for himself. And maybe he hadn't been a perfect father to her. He hadn't been a, a, a perfect father. He might not have even been a good father to her. But he'd been a better father than he'd ever had. And it doesn't justify the alcoholism. It doesn't make any of that okay. But it just, it was true and it was real. And, and my mother decided that she would not abandon him. She wouldn't do to him what had happened to him as a young boy. She, she wouldn't leave him alone. And as far as she had anything to say with it, he was always going to have a family to come home to. And that's exactly what my mother decided. I would have never known that they had a strained relationship when, when she was younger. I, I, I had no idea that that kind of difficulty was present between them. All I knew was we would always either have him over for Christmas or we were always with him at Christmas. And, and we, we loved each other. And I, I realized, as my father was telling me the story about my mother and her father, I realized something that I know, but sometimes I push far away from my own heart. And that is that in every family story, there is a, 
a strand of pain. And it is passed down from generation to generation. And in the fifth commandment, God is calling us to recognize that strand of pain and then start to weave a thread of grace through our family story. To not let the pain, the suffering, the disappointment, to not pretend that that alone can tell the whole story because it never does the whole story justice because mixed in with the pain and the sorrow and the suffering, there are moments of laughter and goodness and joy and more than all of that, in spite of all of that, there's love. A love that is stronger than the brokenness. It's not a love that denies the brokenness. It's not a love that says it didn't happen. It's not a love that forgets that that any struggles were there. It is a love that's stronger than the brokenness. That tells the truth and is still stronger. You know, when you're a kid honoring your father and mother, I, I think it amounts to obeying. But as you get older... Honoring becomes a lot more than just obeying. I, I think it's a commandment to make a choice about not only what we remember, but how we remember. Now, I know there are people in this room who have had just, the parents were nowhere to be found, that, that there was a complete and total failure and, and I am not in any way this morning sharing these stories to try to say that whatever you, you've been through, you should just move on past it and, and try to be nice. I'm not, that, that's, that's not at all what I'm saying. I, I think what I'm trying to say is for the vast majority of us, the truth is the people who raised us did the best they could. And they loved us better than we tend to remember. They did the best they could. And when people do the best they could, they need grace. Because no matter what, the best anybody can do in a family, it's not good enough. Right now, you got to ask yourself, why is something this personal? Why is something this intimate? Why is it in the Ten Commandments? And I think what we've got to admit is what the Ten Commandments actually are is that they're the raw ingredients. They're the, they're the non-negotiables that you need to make a community work. And if we're going to stay together when none of us is perfect, if we're going to stay in relationship when we fail each other and when we, we're, we're, we're broken in ways that break each other, if that's all going to be real and it's going to happen then the only future we have, if it's going to be a future that we share together, is a future where we don't just obsess on the brokenness and we don't say that the brokenness is all there is, but we say the brokenness is present in our lives, but grace is stronger still. It is the only way forward. And I promise you, we're all going to limp into that future. We're going to limp there together. Because it's not just parents who who wound their children. Children wound their parents right back. 
Honor your father and mother. I don't think that just means obey your father and mother. I think it means tell the good stories too. And don't just tell the good stories. Live the good stories. I remember my dad telling me when I was 16, 17 years old, he said, you're not just like me. You're like me in a lot of ways that disappoint me. (laughs) You know that feeling, right? I know that feeling just with my daughters, right? You see yourself in your kids and there's times you see yourself in your kids and you feel I'm doing okay. And then there's other times you see yourself in your kids and you think, oh, we, we need help. We do need help. And the help that we have is each other. If we're going to honor our fathers and our mothers well, We're not just going to tell the good stories. We're going to live the good stories. We're going to become like them in ways that bless them. We're going to become like them in the ways that they're already like our Heavenly Father. There's something in everyone that you can honor. My prayer is that we find it. We're going to sing together now, and as we do our shepherds and their wives a few of them will be just outside these double doors to talk with you to to visit with you to pray with you and so if you came this morning and and you have something that you'd like to to visit with a christian couple about if if you'd like to know more about our church family uh, if you'd like to know more about following jesus whatever it is um, they're there to be with you and to be community for you so go to them as together we stand and sing